Well, good morning, friends, fans, and colleagues, and welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio at this uh, special time. And uh, if you're a regular to the show, you know sometimes we do this at 11 in the morning, especially when we're speaking to uh, guests from across the pond. And uh, that's exactly what's happening today. Uh, but before we get to that interview, I just want to give a shout out to Celia, uh, this, the artist who's uh, uh, cut uh, Meta Prayer uh, opened up the show. So thank you, Celia. And if any listeners are uh, looking to expand their musical uh, repertoire or um, uh, uh, bank of songs, uh, check out Celia. She has some good stuff. Um, also, before I say uh, you know adieu to everyone today uh, after the interview, uh, hang in there with me because Pat, our roving goddess reporter, uh, has sent us some great articles, especially in light of this being uh, Women's History Month. Uh, one of them is about uh, how the national parks wouldn't exist without women. And... Um, I know it was Sunday, but, you know, we're still kind of in the season of uh, St. Patrick's Day, and um, I have a great write-up from Mama Donna Hennis, um, who is um, a, a feminist leader and uh, goddess advocate. She's also contributed to my uh, recent uh, third anthology, Awaken the Feminine. Uh, we interviewed her recently. Uh, she has a wonderful newsletter that comes out, and she's talking about uh, the real St. Patrick's Day and what's really behind it, you know, rather than the version mainstream people uh, often hear. So, um, you know, stay with me, and if you don't already know that, you'll learn about it. And if you do already know about it, you might like to hear it again. Uh, so, uh, turning to uh, today's show, uh, I have with me uh, Lizette Schutmacher, who is a Dutch author who writes in English. Uh, she has an MA from uh, Leiden University in the Netherlands, maybe that's Leiden, uh, where she studied the classics and later obtained uh, a BS in Brennan Healing Science uh, in, in the U.S., uh, before coming an author, she founded and ran a communications agency, which she successfully sold. And until recently, she served as the chair of the trustee of the Findhorn Foundation in Scotland and of the Center for Human Emergence in the Netherlands. This is her fourth book on patterns in our lives that underpin our actions, uh, but we seldom address. Uh, she also has another book out that I find very interesting, and maybe we'll have her back uh, to talk about it. It's called The Eldest Daughter Effect, How Firstborn Women Harness Their Strengths, uh, which was a topic of her uh, 2016 TED Talk. Uh, Lizette loves having no children, uh, living in Amsterdam with her partner, uh, who also never wanted children, and keeping in touch with her nieces and nephews uh, and other people, old and young, who she comes across. And her website, in case we forget to mention it uh, before she goes, is her name. And I'll spell that for you. Uh, Lizette Schutmacher, L-I-S-E-T-T-E-S-C-H-U-I-T-E-M-A-K-E-R. And um, we are chatting about her book, uh, Childless Living, The Joys and Challenges of Life Without Children. So, Lizette, welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio. 
Thank you, Karen. It's lovely to be here. Great. Well, I'm. Uh, you know, when your book. Uh, came to me from your publisher, in which, by the way, you're going to need to add the title of your new book to your bio. Um, you know, I was so excited because um, I am what they call here in the United States childless by choice. Um, I even belong to a group in Los Angeles with some other women that I knew. Uh, you know, they and their husbands were also childless by choice. And, you know, we would get together uh, on occasion, um, because of that, uh, you know, that uh, like-minded uh, life choice, and because you know we found that we were really in the minority, and it was nice to know other people who had the courage to defy um, women's role models and tradition and actually make that choice. Uh, so thank you for writing this book. I, I don't know of anyone else that's done it. Well, thank you for that. And that, that is exactly one of the reasons that prompted me uh, to write it, because I had a conversation at the launch of the Eldest Daughter Effect uh, now, almost three years ago. Uh, we entered in a conversation about the role of eldest daughters, and I said one of the reasons that I myself do not have children is that I didn't really want to make an eldest daughter. I found it a difficult role. And then we entered into a conversation about not having children and having children. Some women had children, some women hadn't. And it was a lovely conversation. At the end, we said, we never really talk about this topic at all. You know, you talk about it in your 20s and your 30s, and then it kind of evaporates. But it, it travels with you your whole life. Yes, yes, it, it really does because, you know, um, I know for me, um, I was fortunate that my mother or family never forced the idea of having children on me, um, fortunately. Um, and, you know, my mother had my sister when I was already 10. And I think that was a big influence on me because I saw what happened in our household, <laughs> uh, the chaos. Uh, oh, that, that's the best word, I think, to describe it. Um, you know, our lives change so drastically, and not for the better. And I'm just being honest, you know, uh, because I think people talk about children um, the way, uh, you know, they're, they think they're expected to talk about children. You know, they're politically correct about it. Uh, which uh, just makes me a little crazy. And, um, I mean, my life was miserable after my sister, and I don't think it's because I had been an only child. Um, it was just the overall chaos in the house, how, you know, everybody's life changed because now there was a baby. Um, and, you know, I just never had that warm and fuzzy feeling about children that other women claim they have. I'm sure some do, but I wonder how many pretend to because that's what's expected of them. Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, already in 1916, so over 100 years ago, there was a, a wonderful American woman, Dr. Lita Hollingworth, who, um, who joined her husband uh, after her, their marriage in New York and expected to go and teach. And then it turned out that great city forbid women to teach after after marriage, so she thought, okay, I'll get a PhD and study this phenomenon. And she proposed, she said there must be like a scale 
of maternity feeling. Like there's women or, or people, men too, people um, who have always felt that, that, you know, having a family, being a parent would be the accomplishment of their life, would fulfill their purpose. But on the other, other end, the other extreme of the scale, are people who have actually never had any interest in having children. There's people who said to me that even as a child they didn't like children. So they certainly weren't going to have any of their own. And there's people with experiences like you. You're not the only one telling me this, that, you know, they just saw how chaotic, how exhausted their parents were, how difficult it was. They maybe had siblings who were very difficult, who didn't really follow the path, but trade and and but in between the extremes of those who've always wanted it and those who never really had a, a want there is is like a bell curve of people who wanted a little but not enough and people who wanted you know <laughs> half half that's actually the most difficult ones one day they want it one day they don't what to do but but I think we're distributed amongst that curve Well, you know, I, um, I, I, I believe after I, um, you know, made the decision and was committed in that direction, I mean, I discovered a lot of different studies uh, that showed, um, you know, how much better off, in a, you know, and, and again, this is all relative, and this supported my decision, obviously, these studies. Um, you know, they showed that uh, women who had fewer children uh, or no children were happier. Um, you know, they could pursue their, maybe their, the, you know, goals in life that they would have had to put on hold or never pursue uh, if they had children. Um, you know, also, too, the idea that, um, uh, you know, it, unlike men, you know, who can go out in the world and, and do what they want to do, you know, women are, uh, are stuck home. And, um, you know, where I'm going with this is, you know, it, I, I think the study showed that the more educated the woman was, the fewer children she had. And, you know, and I kind of lay a lot of this at the foot of religion, and I know I'm kind of jumping around here, but I think since we live in patriarchy and men have defined the roles of women, and I think a lot of it has to do with religion telling women that, you know, um, you know, this is their role in life, this is who they were intended to be because, you know, we have a uterus and a womb and, uh, you know, that's what God intended. You know, I think it became a trap uh, for women. And, um, and, and I really wish there was more discussion on it uh, because I've interviewed so many women who were in these fundamentalist, extremist, uh, Christian and not only Christian, you know, other patriarchal religions too, you know, who, um, you know, were basically, um, you know, baby-making machines. And, you know, they mm. would expect these women to have babies until they, you know, couldn't produce babies anymore. And if they got too old and they died in childbirth, they say, oh, well, you'll be blessed by Jesus. And, you know, it, it, it just sort of makes it feel like women to some uh, groups or no more than an incubator, uh, you know, for the male seed is a, you know, a famous expression. And um, I don't know, is, is that something you hear over there in Europe or is, you know, this sh uh, strictly an American phenomenon, you know, with the, you know, influence of religion, I guess? 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, fundamentalism from whichever religion in whichever area of the world always kind of clamps down on women. And, um, but those, fortunately, is not a majority of the people. Um, uh, and not here where I live. I live in a quite liberated country. Yet I, I completely uh, recognize what you say. But when I grew up, you know, my mother was a housewife, and she loved it. I was born in 54. She was a classic 50s housewife, and this was the fulfillment of her life. She's 91 now, and she still says, you know, I had a wonderful life. I loved having you four children, my husband. I loved staying home. And my father, you know, disappeared in the morning. I had no idea. He went to an office. I didn't know what people in offices were up to all day, but he kind of came home whenever, more or less dinner time, and I always thought, wow, that looks, that looks to me like a much more interesting life than the life of my mother who is <laughs> stuck with us and we quarrel. You know? So my mother's life never appealed to me. But nowadays, here too, like you say, if, if women get an education, uh, the higher the education of the women, the fewer children they have or no children. That, that is a phenomenon here as well, because you become aware that you have a choice and that, you, that your life is yours and that maybe there is a purpose in you that is not motherhood, but that is realizing your potential through work or volunteering or art or singing or, or whatever you, know, you are called to do, and it might not be baby making as you say and then baby raising and then uh you know all that comes to it i have i have great respect for parents because it's a lot of work it's a lot of work and it's never over children are there to stay <laughs> well, and, yeah well yeah and, and i mean the phenomena here in the united states and i don't know if it's the same there in the netherlands because i know you you folks we envy you at least you know people like me do because you know you're you know you've been pulled to be the happiest people uh you know on the planet because of your democratic socialism instead of the you know the predator capitalism you know that uh, has us all uh you know with a boot on our neck um it, but you know it it uh it seems like um, I, I kind of lost my train of thought there. <laughs> um, uh, I'm sorry. What was the last thing you said? Was that I, I apologize? I didn't know what the last thing was. I said I, I just know you said you you envy us here in the Netherlands because we have been pulled to be uh, amongst the happiest people, and I think that is because there is freedom of choice, which. You know, on the other side of freedom of choice is also for young people now sometimes. They have so many choices that they are also kind of uh, bogged down by the responsibility to make the right choice. Um, ah, yeah. But in, in essence, oh, I think we I, are I, quite a happy people. Well, and, and I do remember what, uh, you know, what I was going to say. You know, you were saying how the long-term commitment parenting is – and and where and the reason I was going in that economic direction was because you know here in the United States you know millennials you know are growing up with so much college debt uh, that uh, you know they can't really start a life 
or they can't even go to college. And, um, you know, all of that must just be, um, you know, utterly uh, amazing to you, you know, living there in the Netherlands that we would tolerate such, uh, you know, abuse and exploitation. But, you know, we have an opioid epidemic here in the United States that is uh, really just becoming overwhelming. And I think it's because of the hopelessness, um, the lack of... um, of optimism that there is going to be a decent life or this, quote, American dream that people used to be able to achieve in maybe the 70s or the 80s, which which is gone. I mean, kids are still living in their family, you know, in their, in their mother and father's homes. You know, we hear it over and over again because, uh, you know, life has gotten so difficult here. So it's like the parents never get rid of these kids. You know, um, and, and and I understand the difficulty, yeah. but imagine it's like a life sentence. <laughs> well, that's what we would say. But, uh, yeah, I do also sometimes see that children are like boomerangs. You know, they, they come back when they cannot find a job or when they go into when they have debts or when they divorce and. It's all expensive. And, uh, yeah, but I also, you know, must say that I've talked to many parents who who tell me they're delighted with their children and wouldn't have, you know, have had another life than being a parent. But um, when I see it, and I think, you know, if, if you're happy with life without children, now I'm at the age where my friends become grandmothers. And I go like, oh, my goodness, the whole circus starts again. But they are over the moon, and they love to babysit the child, and they love to show me pictures, and I'm I'm fine as long as it's not too many, you know. I'm I'm mildly interested, but um, yeah, many of them love it, and some of them say, no, I'm not going to do it all over again. I've done it, and now now it's my time. And those maybe were, yeah. you know, on the parenting scale, were closer to the middle than than completely on one extreme of of having always wanted parenthood. Yeah, we you know, come because in I all, can think in of all ways. Yeah, and I mean, and and I don't mean this to be offensive, you know, I'm just being candid. I mean, I can't think of anything more boring than being with a woman or a guy who can't talk about anything but mommy daycare. Uh, I I don't even know if I'm saying the right terms, but, you know, what it's like to take care of their kid and, you know, diapers and parenting skills and, you know, and and that's their whole life. And, And, of course, they love it and more power to them, but... Um, you know, I, I think I, I'll tell you this, this story. My husband and I were on a plane once, and um, uh, the woman in front of us had a baby. And this woman changed that baby's diaper on the, uh, the tray in front of her. She wrapped up that diaper, and she stuck it under her seat. And all of us around it had to smell this stinky diaper. And I actually, you know, called the the, uh, flight attendant and I said, can we please do something about that under there? We all don't want to smell that. And, you know, it's amazing to me what some parents think other people should tolerate because they're happy (laughs) to. Oh, this is a horrible story. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then you also go into well, the whole thing about, um, you know, the things parents can say to us 
uh, who have no children and how hard it is for us to say anything back. Like, you know, the whole selfish question. I don't know if you wanted to go there, but it's so often that people say, oh, people with bad children are selfish. And Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've certainly had that remark. Don't you think it's rather selfish not to have children? And I always thought, don't you think it's rather selfish to have children, to put them, you know, Earth is, is a wonderful place, but it's also a hard place. It's, it's, life is difficult. Uh, you don't know what's going to happen to them. And, and you, they haven't really asked to be born. Well, that all also depends on what you believe, of course. But anyway, there, there is some um, recriminations to us, but it's very hard to say something back to to parents because there is still a bit of kind of sacrifice and holiness around um, the wonderful beings who take on parenthood. Well, you know, I have a few things to say about that. Um, Yes, I have had that said to me, but, you know, my response back would be selfish to who, you know, Um, who, you know, uh, who is, uh, you know, who am I denying what, you know, if, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's one thing. And, you know, I have a real belief that religion conditions us to um, accept suffering and sacrifice. And I think that, you know, this whole idea fits into that, um, you know, uh, very, very nicely. Um, But, you know, you say in your book and, uh, you know, that uh, half of the people aged, you know, 15 to 44 in the U.S. have no children. And, um, you know, and that seems like a large number. Um, I, I'm surprised it's that high. I, you know, are we getting smarter? <laughs> uh, are we better educated? You know, what what can you say about that? Well, I would, um, you know, half the people between 15 and 44 have no children. So I think you and I would agree that we hope that all of the people of 15 years old do not have children. So that it is 100% there. And at age 16 and 17, likewise, I would you know, I think it's not such a good idea when children have children. Um, but the number of people who have no children is is definitely growing. In the Netherlands, it is now over one in five adults have no children. And um, statistics say that about 60% of them would have wanted a child, but they don't find a right partner, they leave it too long and then are quite surprised that it just doesn't happen when they're ready or uh, they haven't had such a pleasant childhood and kind of have to recuperate from that before they're ready to give love to another human being. Um, But about 40% of us have have chosen not to have children. And in Belgium, it's, it's actually more. Italy, Japan have very long had know, very low birth uh, numbers. And, um, and and so I think it is many of us, as, as you know, you said, you um, we kind of feel like we are pioneers because often in our family, we all come from a family by definition, whatever the makeup of that family was. Um, we all come from a family, and then we don't start a family, so we feel maybe uh, uh, different or weird or awkward or uh, 
the odd one out. But when you look at the numbers, when you walk the street, you know, one in five adults does not have children. We don't realize that at all. Uh, we are a minority, but we're a big minority. Hmm. Um, that's well. I was so glad that you, uh, in your book, you know, you you did. Um, uh, I mean, you you did. You know, I guess what you could sort of call, you know, some scientific research. It wasn't just, you know, interviewing uh, people, uh, you know, and, and anecdotally speaking about not having children. Um, and you did a global survey uh, in which 700 people from 30 countries participated. Um, so I'm wondering, um, you know, this is really kind of an across-the-board, if you will, um, you know, survey. What was the main reasons young people uh, were against children, and um, what were some of the questions you were asking in the survey? Yeah, so some of the questions I was asking was about whether people felt pressured to have children by their parents, by their peers, by their religion, by their culture. And the answer across the board of the people I reached, because 700 in, uh, you know, the 6 billion isn't so many, but they were from 30 countries, is people didn't really feel pressured. I also asked about whether they would regard themselves as more extroverted people, so people who charge by, uh, who get energy from being with people, which when you start a family, you kind of have to get energy from being with people because there's going to be people in your life, or whether they felt they were more introverted, so they, they recoup their energy by being alone, and they kind of divided themselves half and half. Um, I asked whether it was of their own choice or whether it was other circumstances. And, uh, you know, young people these days, and, and this is not only in the West, but also happening in the Far East and in uh, the Arab countries, are, are really thinking about, am I, am I the person who wants a child? Is this on my life path? Is this really for me? How is this world that I bring this child into? Is this a happy world? Do I see, do I have hope for the future and, and for, for the planet? Some, there, there's a new acronym, actually. It, it used to be in my time, there were a lot of DINKS, double income, no kids. And now I stumbled upon this uh, woman who said, I'm a gink. I have green inclinations, no kids, because it really makes a difference. One less child makes a difference for the planet. And then there's the things you mentioned. You know, people have uh, insecurity about their financial situation. And I think that is phenomenal, because if you have insecurity about your financial situation and, you know, and you bring a kid into the mix, it's only going to be worse. So I think it is very wise and sensible and, and sensitive to where they are at if they think longer and maybe not have children and then also are aware that life without children is a rich and, and fulfilling life. Well, um, your researcher said that people who participated in your survey described themselves as bizarrely happy. Um, did you want to <laughs> say more about maybe the source of their happiness? 
Yes, it was really wonderful. I came to her office uh, to learn uh, about the results of the research, and she opened the door, and this was the first thing she said. She said, Lisette, you have reached a bizarrely happy segment of the population. And, and she can compare, of course, with other uh, research being done. And I think the, the happiness comes from uh, the sense of contribution that we feel we can make to society. We feel we're not curbed in any way. We don't need to, to run away at 5 o'clock because the daycare center closes or, or our carers go home. Um, we can really reali- realize our own potential, live our life to the full, and feel we, have, we make a contribution to society at large. I thought that was very, very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think about my own life, and I probably would not have been able to do uh, 80% of what I've done, whether that be, you know, traveling to Europe, writing books, doing this radio show, um, you know, I mean, I mean, the list is endless. If I had to, you know, spend my money, you know, putting braces on kids, uh, you know, doctors, um, I don't know, it, I'll, I'll, you know, clothes, food, you know, for extra mouths. And, and, and you know, yeah. and I guess somebody could hear me and say, gee, you do sound selfish. But I don't think it's selfish. You know, I think it's a conscious choice about what you want for the one life that you have. And I know right now uh, you probably uh, have heard at least a little bit, if not a lot, about our radical right-wing Fox News. Um, you know, they are crazed right now because we have some new progressive uh, Democratic politicians like uh, mm. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, talking I about the Green her New Twitter. Deal. I love her. Yes, Sorry, yes, said, yes, we her. do. I follow her on Twitter. I love her. I think she is so outspoken and great, and she has such great reports to what people say to her. Yes, yes. And, you know, and and they're trying to make her look like a fool because she's talking about fewer children and, uh, you know, the methane gas from cows and, you know, how we have to restructure society if we're going to survive. And, of course, you know, the people on Fox News, you know, they're, they're such fear mongers and they're scared to death of any change. And, you know, they're, they're taking her words about fewer children or no children and trying to cast her as if she's some, um, you know, crazy alien from another planet. Um, you know, I, I, I think, um, uh, you know, as, as we become more aware of our surroundings and I think less uh, trapped by our conditioning, you know, these are just logical choices, you know. It's, it's not some you know, crazy, extreme, harebrained ideas. <laughs> no, I completely agree with you there. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in your book, um, you, uh, you set the book up in four chapters corresponding to the four seasons of life, which is, which is interesting and fresh. Um, so the four seasons of life were spring, summer, fall, and winter. Um, I'm wondering, uh, was there a reason behind that, uh, that ingenious um, organization uh, of, of the book? 
Well, it was what saved me, to be honest, because this wasn't an easy topic to write about. Um, You know, already we say we're child-free or childless, so there is something not that maybe ought to be there in the minds of some people. But it was hard to say, what, what, how is the life of child-free or childless people different? You say, you know, you have traveled, and uh, I completely agree. I could not have done, write books, uh, be the chair of the Fintorn Foundation and the Center for Human Emergence. I could never have done that had I had children. And at the same time, of course, there's parents, and my sister, for instance, is one. She is the extreme multitasker who can do it all. You know, she can sit on boards and have four children and a good marriage and start her own company and, and, and do it all. So it was very hard to describe how is our life different. But then um, this thing of saying this, not having children is something that travels with you through life. And I was talking to my editor. Uh, to be honest, you know, I wrote a lot and then I kind of got stuck. So we were talking, 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 and then she said, maybe this is something, this journey through life. Maybe, maybe the seasons of life, you know, we kind of bounce that back and forth together. And once I had that, the book kind of wrote itself. It was just done in, in three months, and I could use a lot of what I had written before. But, but it's like in spring, you know, we're all children. In spring, we're all children, and we have our images of who we're going to be when we grow up, right? And then if summer is, is like from 25 to 50 when roads really diverge, when parents go one way and, and those of us who do not become parents often have a very different life as we, we, we stay living in the city. We don't go to the suburbs to commute. We don't need to live near a school unless we are teachers, of course. Uh, sometimes we have to find new friends because many of our friends kind of disappear in, in, in baby land or child land and go on holiday with friends with children too and spend their weekends, whereas we would like to do other things, go to courses and develop ourselves. And so that's really when the roads diverge. And then some women said, thank God, in the fall, in the autumn of our lives, there is menopause. So now we know this door is shut. And we have developed ourselves into interesting, capable uh, people. And... Um, we can change jobs. We don't need to stay in a job because we want our children to have a good education or we're still paying off a big house for the big family. So we're much more nimble on our feet. And as you say, uh, we, we, many of us are able to travel because of not spending the money in different ways. And then, of course, the winter season is uh, those people who ask me, don't you think it's selfish, would also say, who will take care of you in your old age? And I feel like, well, I hope you didn't have your children to take care of you in your old age because there's no guarantee there. And uh, that, of course, is not only an individual issue, but that's also a societal issue because there are so many of us. So the whole care and home situation will need to be sorted out, and there's there's, uh, organizations already looking ahead and and talking about that, uh, both on governmental level and on UN level even. Well, maybe where you live in uh, in Scandinavian countries, but I don't know of any in the United States. And I hope uh, I hope maybe you do know some, uh, you know, because it seems like, you know, where you live, the government is so much more oriented to taking 
uh, you know, taking into account the needs of the people and using their tax dollars to benefit them. Uh, where here, mm-hmm. you know, our tax dollars all go to the rich and the military-industrial complex, and uh, you know, and, and all the rest. Um, but listen, let us take a break now, and um, I uh, want to uh, share uh, some news from Joe Carson, uh, one of the show sponsors. But when we get back, um, I want to know about um, your process. You know, when did it become, or how did it become clear to you that you weren't going to have children? And um, I also want to talk about the hidden grief of people who didn't have children but would have liked to, and if, you know, maybe there's any advice you can give them. So, um, you know, be uh, calling that up in your mind, uh, Lizette, and I'll be back in just a moment, okay? Yes. Here we go. Hello, let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is what Drusilla Pettibone said on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I don't think I can comment on it adequately until I've had a chance to watch it a couple more times. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was obviously very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also so pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. Listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. Uh, in it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about Earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of goddesses Gaia. Uh, the DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and booklet for only $20 at DancingWithGaia.com. 
And uh, if by some chance you are just tuning in with me, um, having a lovely conversation at this special time uh, of the day uh, with Lizette uh, Schutmacher, a uh, Dutch author, uh, who's just written the lovely book, uh, Childless Living, the Joys and Challenges of Life Without Children. And um, we, uh, we said that the, at the break we were going to come back, uh, Lizette, and um, chat about your journey um, when you discovered you weren't going to have children. Is there something you'd like to share about that process? Yeah, thank you, Karen. It's, uh, for me, it was a gradual discovery, actually, and, and very much um, um, I was once engaged to be married, so I was once really on the path that my mother, I was an eldest daughter, my mother had found fulfillment in marriage and, and parenthood, motherhood, so she expected me to go that way too. And then I had a dream. I looked at my husband-to-be, and the question was popped, and I said no. And in my dream, I heard the whole you know, the people in the church kind of gasp, what is she doing? And I had to dream again, and then I broke up my engagement. And I think I, I was about, I don't know, 25 then. And I think that started me on uh, being honest about who I was. I wasn't going to walk that path. But um, still being an, a, a child of conditioning of the 50s and 60s, I, I tried to adapt. I tried a few times to see if I couldn't fit in, but I, I couldn't really. And, and I just saw myself make choices uh, that led away from the life that many of my uh, college friends were starting to have, like, like have a job at a regular company and, and get a, a marry, have a house, uh, a child. Well, I was leaving the company that I worked for and starting out uh, on my own as a freelancer and then acquiring a company from one of um, my um, clients and building that company and loving. I just love to work. And then I met this man. I was 39, and I thought, oh, this is, this is the year. If I still want to do it, this, this is the year. Now kind of the curtain closes. And... Um, he he will not mind me saying so. It's also in the book. He had already had it snipped because he never for a day in his life had wanted children. So he thought, you know, why burden the woman I'm with uh, with taking contraceptives? Let me just take care of that. And and I was still taking my temperature to look at my ovulation. And, you know, at some point it just all came together and I thought, no, no, this is, it just isn't my life. I would like, I like children. I love my nephews and nieces, really, I do. Uh, and uh, I'm a good aunt. I'm a really good aunt. But um, I wouldn't have been such a happy mother. So it took a while to accept that. But once I accepted it, I yeah. was, like, freed also. Yeah, yeah, it had to be a big... Um a, a big uh, burden off your shoulders. So I'm assuming the first, uh, the fiancé when you were 25, he expected to go the traditional route with kids and all, and that's why you uh, decided to break off that engagement. Yeah, he decided to, I don't remember that we even talked about it. It was all an assumption, right? Like, like so many things are assumed 
And I, I think the assumption was he would make the career and I would have the children. And if I could wing it, I could also have a bit of a nice little job on the side. You know, and, and that's not right. at all. That's not at all how my life turned out. That's not at all who I am. But it takes a while when you're right. in your 20s and 30s to figure out who you are, right? Well, exactly. And I mean, and, and these women who uh, end up saddled with kids, you know, when they're 18, 19, 20, 22, 24, you know, how can they possibly know um, what they want for their life or what, uh, what could potentially be? I mean, it's, it's just way too soon, I think, to make those sorts of decisions that, uh, are going to impact, um, you know, the rest of your life. You know, uh, just to share an interesting tidbit here, um, uh, I was very surprised once that uh, I went to a class. It was a class on astrology, and um, they were doing life charts. And what I didn't know was they were doing past life charts. And... Um, you know, the woman took all my data, and I don't know a lot about how they do this, but um, she called me up, um, you know, and she, and she took us one by one and went over our charts, and she said to me, she said, uh, you've chosen not to have kids in this life, right? I mean, how would she possibly know? Okay, but she got this from my chart. And um, she also said uh, that um, in your past life, you were the eldest daughter and you had to take care of six or seven of your siblings. So that's why in this life you said, no, you're done with it and you're not going to have it. And I don't know, you know, I mean, there's no way to verify that, but um, she caught my attention when she knew this, you know, very non-traditional thing about me that I had chosen not to have kids. And it kind of gave a little credence to her beliefs and what my past life had been. And um, I don't know, I just thought that was pretty incredible. And, uh, you know, maybe that's part of the eldest daughter phenomena you wrote about in your other book. And also, your story really touches me. I was traveling through India once when I was 30 or something, and I was expecting that I was not going to have children. And um, so I got in touch there with the whole phenomenon of reincarnation that I hadn't given so much thought to before. And, and so I came back from India. I remember that vividly with the idea... No, maybe last time I had 19 kids or 11 kids, and this time, this lifetime is for me. You know, so so that really resonates with what you're telling about these past life uh, horoscopes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, let let's talk a little bit about the you know the people who have grief, um, you know, about not having had children. What because you cover that in your book as well. Um, let's talk a little bit about them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I touch upon that because um, I really wanted to show how fulfilling life without children can be, but I, I of course, then have to touch in upon this. But there are, more, there are more books about kind of the silent mourning and the, uh, the solitary path when you would want to have children and you, it turns out you're infertile or 
you go for IVF and month after month, you know, it, it doesn't go because that is quite a solitary journey. Um, as many of those people, you know, don't broadcast that they have had another miscarriage and you don't, when somebody dies, you know, usually you kind of let your friends and family know, but when it, 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 something doesn't hatch, so to say, you don't let everybody know because after a while people also maybe get a little tired of your your drive to become uh, a parent. And uh, so I, I just want to respect, you know, the the deep sense of loss that many people live with. And I actually just wrote an article for a magazine called Goldie, which is about our golden years, about how the grief about not having children might resurface for some people when their friends become grandparents. And and very often people haven't, you know, they've taken unawares. They thought they had dealt with the grief, and then, whoops, uh, they see the joy of their friends uh, over their their grandchildren, and and then it comes back. But I've of course also spoken to people who who kind of were able to change tack to accept. Okay, so life has chosen for me. This is not possible. Okay, then I'll make the best of it. And I think a rather lovely example was of this man who who wanted children very much. His partner didn't really, but they tried anyway. It didn't. Didn't, nothing happened. They went and had themselves checked. Then it turned out it was his his sperm that wasn't strong enough or didn't have tails. I, I don't exactly remember what the cause was. But anyway, he then thought, what can I do to have children in my life? And he became a teacher. He gave up his job at the university and gave up, like, status and pay and... Um, and became a high school teacher, and he really loves to be about children, around children all day, and it turns out those children don't necessarily need to be his own. So, so I tried also to, to give some examples of how you can reframe your life when what you want turns out not to be possible. Yeah, and, and I was actually thinking about that before you said how this guy solved his desire for children by becoming a teacher because, you know, there are so many ways. I mean, you can adopt children. You can, um, you know, you can volunteer. You can become a big brother or a big sister. I mean, if you really, really want children in your life, there are ways you can do it without um, them being your biological child. And um, I wonder, I, I guess I'm, I wonder if in your study, um, that distinction of it being a biological child, was that a huge motivator? Um, you know, that, these, that maybe these people didn't, um, you know, adopt a child or something like that? Was it really the, the need to have someone that shared your blood? I think for some it is. And I have never, and I've spoken to other women who have, who, who, who confirmed this too, I have never kind of had the onset of hormones that I've seen some of my friends be completely, you know, flushed out with. It's just one moment they were kind of, will I have children, will I have not? And then kind of hormones kicked in and, and, you know, the genes just wanted to procreate, and they there was no arguing with that. So, of course, in a more rational way, 
um, uh, and for instance, what comes to mind is, is women uh, in India and Pakistan who say there are so many children, there are so many street children in our country, that why would you ever want to have a child of your own if you could have one or more of them? But for some people, they want to know, you know, what is the product of the love between me and my partner? What is, uh, uh, or, the, or the family lineage is important to them. Um, you know, that, that their family continues in some way. So, you know, what I think is wonderful in this day and age is how many, how many different reasons and different lives we can have. And so for some, it's absolutely paramount that these children be their own flesh and blood. And then others have said, okay, it doesn't work. Let me look around. Nephews and nieces, children of friends, children of a colleague, I'm just going to be like a third adult in their lives that they can talk to without any projections, without me needing to enforce many rules. So that can be, and I know this as an aunt, I very much appreciate my role as aunt, that can be a very free and kind of adult relationship. Yeah, and and when you're done with it, when you're tired of it, you can walk away. (laughs) You know, it's it's not a 24-7 thing. No, 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 it isn't. It isn't. And and still, you know, when children are in your heart, then... uh, you, you care about them, but but I do see a huge difference between how my sister or my brother is involved in the life of, of their children and how involved I am. It, it's a big difference. Yeah. Well, now, you, in the book, um, you came up with six common characteristics that you noticed um, uh, reflected in people without children, you know, generally speaking. Uh, did you want to maybe share what those were? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, one is, of course, that we are unconventional people, especially if we have made the choice. We are unconventional. We, we're not going to live the life of our parents, and they might be okay with it. They might be not so okay with it. There's a whole other chapter there. But we are kind of unconventional people. And, and if the choice is made for you, then you better become a bit more unconventional. Maybe you are more unconventional than you thought you were. Um, we're also quite autonomous. Many of us you know, kind of chart our own course, and that's what we're going to do, regardless of what our culture or peers or religions say. And then there's a, a few um, characteristics that if we don't have them, if, you want to be, if we want to be successful at childless living, we better cultivate those a little bit. Like, we must be self-starting. You know, there's no little feet that come and, and wake us up and say they need breakfast unless we have a dog, maybe. But um, so we must get out of bed in the morning through our own volition and motivation. And we need to be self-directed. Uh, it's not like, you know, you have a child, because when you have a child, it's like the next 18 years of your life are more or less charted, because you, you need to do your best to get the child through the whole schooling system. For us, we can take any direction we like, so that also brings the onus to us to be like, what is really mine to do? Then there is the quality of self-sufficiency. Many of us, there's also, of course, many people who who are single and who really enjoy their own company. And if we don't enjoy our own company, we better kind of practice at, at loving being alone and cooking for ourselves and just 
making uh, not only a nice meal, but a nice evening for herself. And the final one, I would say, is to be self-fulfilling. Um, and, and so this comes back to the, the bizarrely happy people who I found through my survey, because they feel fulfilled with the roles that they play in society, in the lives of other people, in the lives of children, not their own. But we must find that fulfillment in ourselves. We cannot say, now I have a child, now you fulfill my dreams. Now I hang my, my destiny on your little shoulders. So in that way, you know, the whole selfish thing, yes, it's all quite self-started, self-directed, self-fulfilling, but I think that is actually a beautiful thing, and it can be a beautiful life yeah. if we live like this. Um, did you run across many people who maybe candidly said to you they had a romanticized um, idea of what it was like to have children, and if they had it to do again, they wouldn't? Yeah, there's there's the whole uh, thing of kind of regretting motherhood, regretting parenthood, right? Um, I w- there was one woman who wanted to speak to me, and I don't know her so well, so I thought, but she has two children, right? So I was a bit confused. And then she said, I, wanted, I really wanted to speak to you, Lisette, because um, I have two children. It is really tough, and I am not sure if I like it. Uh, there, there's books come out in recent years about, from mothers and talking about motherhood and saying, even if they love their children, you know, they don't want to say they don't love their children, but they don't like the role of being a police agent, have you done your homework, uh, come to the table, uh, no, uh, put your phone away, you know, that whole role and the whole life and how their marriage has changed when the children came because there's, yeah, always kind of a, a, a child in the middle. And I think it is beautiful that also on the Internet people can speak about this now because I imagine this has been the case before uh, we could even talk about this. And now, of course, uh, many people are anonymous in those books because they don't want to to be taunted, to be, to be stigmatized as, oh, you're the woman who doesn't love your kids. It's not that. But I don't like that life. That is really coming to the fore now. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Lizette, um, what, do, what would you say readers um, of your book uh, might get out of it? Um, and is it intended mostly, you know, to validate people who have chosen not to have children? I think validation of, of those of us and kind of contemplating our life path and see what has contributed to, it, to this, like things like the pill and feminism, of course, have hugely contributed to us being able even to make this choice. But also for people who are still, shall I or shan't I, um, I think it would be lovely for parents to read if they do not comprehend the choice of their children not to procreate and kind of maybe condemn them for it that there is a whole world. And, and in a way, it is about what I said. Some of us, you know, in our unconventional uh, uh, way of life, might feel quite lonely and through the book, because I'm not, you know, I'm not alone. There are so many of us. There are so many aspects, so many facets to this wonderful way of living. Um, and one of my friends, who is a father of, uh, of one daughter, he had bought the book, and he said, 
actually, it's not a book about having children or not, or that is the theme, but it's actually a book about the art of living. So that was a great compliment. Hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, Lizette, um, I want to thank you for this enjoyable conversation, and uh, thank you for writing the book. And um, I, I'm going to email you and uh, maybe talk to you about coming back on the show later in the year and talk about your other book, The Eldest Daughter Effect, uh, because uh, I certainly find that personally interesting, as I'm sure some of my uh, other listeners would too. And uh, just to mention your website again, um, for those uh, who want to look you up, uh, it's her name, Lizette Schutmacher, and I will spell it, L-I-S-E-T-T-E-S-C-H-U-I-T-E-M-A-K-E-R.com. Well, Lizette, the best of luck uh, with your book. Um, I hope you sell lots and lots and lots of copies. And thank um, you. I'm, I'm just so glad. I'm, I'm so glad you did it. Thank and thank you for being on the show. Thank you, and I'd love to keep in touch, and I'd love to be back to talk about my other book. But thank you very much for uh, for the childless living time we had. <laughs> okay, thank you, Lizette. Uh, and until we uh, you, speak Karen. again, um, have have a have a wonderful spring. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you. Well, um, we are going to turn our attention to um, uh, the roving goddess reporter, Pat, which she sent me uh, about uh, national parks wouldn't exist without women. Uh, But first, um, I want to share this uh, St. Patrick's Day uh, writing from um, uh, Mama Donna Hennis. Uh, She said uh, in her blog, um, she says, I can never... Uh, she says, I cannot say happy St. Patrick's Day, um, a, even though she offers blessings of pride to all of Irish heritage. And the reason is, uh, St. Patrick, a Christian missionary in the 5th century, is said to have rid Ireland of snakes, which were never actually indigenous there. Snakes, though, symbolize the archetypal power of the feminine divine, the kundalini, uh, vivifying energy of the great goddess. On the sacred fire Isle of Ire, she was known as Bridget, beloved great mother goddess of the Celts. As such, she was an aberration to the church. So St. Patrick informed the Celts that from now on, the goddess Bridget was to be referred to as St. Bridget, uh, an apocryphal mortal woman, a devout Christian, and not the powerful divinity of the people. So really, St. Patrick is glorified for having rid Ireland of pagan goddess worship, but he did not defeat the intense adoration that goddess inspired. The flame at the shrine of St. Bridget in Kildare has been kept alive continually to this day. The fire and passion of the goddess is is tended by the Catholic nuns in residence there. St. Patrick's patriarchal proclamation was approximately 1,500 years ago. Yet Bridget lives indomitably on in Ireland's holy wells and sacred flames and in the heart of the people. In the same way that Columbus Day and Thanksgiving are not happy holidays for Native Americans, St. Patrick's Day is shunned by those Irish folks who embrace their Celtic heritage and culture. Instead, they celebrate Bridget's Day on February 2nd, 
Imbolc, the halfway point of winter, when her fiery presence is most felt in the gathering light of the sun, the quickening of the life force. So skip the green beers, the green bagels, and the phony snake story, but do put on the green anyway. Wear green in honor of the coming spring, the springing up of the grasses of new life, and the springing forward of our efforts to heal Mother Earth. With verdant blessings, Mama Donna. So there you go. And um, national parks wouldn't exist without women. Uh, this comes from a blog post of Nicholas uh, uh, Bruyard. Brew, Brewyard. Um, and it says uh, it, it's an npca.org. Um, site that uh, Pat pulled this from. Uh, and I'm just going to read a little part of it because uh, it names a number of women. Um, but from Joshua Tree to Great Sand Dunes, uh, these six special places are protected today thanks to their female champions. Uh, women were the driving force behind the creation of many of our most popular national parks, yet few today are household names. Time to give credit where credit is due. From Joshua Tree to Great Sand Dunes, these national parks simply wouldn't exist as we know them today without the tireless efforts of dedicated women. Um, and here are some. There was Minerva Hoyt, uh, associated with Joshua Tree National Parks in California. Sue Konitomo Embry, um, and she worked for Manzanar National Historic Site, also in California. Virginia D uh, Donahue McClurg, um, she was uh, instrumental in uh, saving Mesa Verde National Park in Colorado. Roxanne Quimby, uh, the Cadadin Woods and Waters National Monument in Maine. Uh, Priscilla, Susan Priscilla Few, uh, Sequoia National Park in California. And the PEO Sisterhood, which worked for the Great Sand Dunes National Park and Preserve in Colorado. So I'll just read a little bit of the details. Um, I'm just going to... Um, you know, pick a couple out. Uh, Minerva Hoyt with Joshua Tree National Park in California uh, became enamored with California desert after she moved to Pasadena with her financier husband in the 80s. A Mississippi native made frequent desert trips on horseback and created a desert garden at home. After her infant son and her husband died, she found solace in the desert, sleeping in the open, listening to the wind blowing through Joshua trees. She became determined to protect the tree's fragile ecosystem. To make people care about the desert, she decided to bring it to them and organize desert plant displays at flower shows from New York to London. After creating the International Desert Conservation League, Hoyt focused uh, on the area south of 29 Palms for the creation of a national park. In 1930, she presented the idea to Horace Albright, then director of the Park Service. He turned it down, but she continued to lobby the Park Service and President Franklin Roosevelt himself. On August 10, 1936, the president relented and Joshua Tree National Monument was created. Um, the other one I'll read is uh, Virginia Donahue McClurg at Mesa Verde National Park in Colorado. Uh, she was on assignment as a reporter for the New York Daily Graphic when she first visited Mesa Verde's cliff dwellings and was hooked. 
She returned four years later with a guide and a photographer uh, and made it a personal mission to both promote ancestral Puebloan ruins and advocate for their protection, delivering lectures from Denver to Paris. A founder of the uh, Colorado Cliff Dwellings Association, she helped build a road to the ruins and led a tour of Mesa Verde for anthropologists and scientists, impressing on them how valuable the site was and how urgent it was to protect it. McClurg initially advocated for the creation of a national park, but she eventually changed her stance, pushing instead for a state park that would be run by her association. In 1906, President Theodore Roosevelt signed the law creating Mesa Verde National Park, and even though McClurg eventually opposed the designation, the protection of the ruins owed much to her publicity and advocacy efforts. You know, here we have two stories that uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt were instrumental in uh, creating these national parks, but it sounds like, um, you know, they had to be pushed uh, by these women. Uh, Susan Priscilla Few, Sequoia National Park in California. Uh, when 35-year-old Susan Few visited Sequoia National Park for the first time, the park had existed for nearly three decades, but only at a fraction of its current size. The Ohio native was awed by the towering sequoias. After she learned of various projects to expand the park, she decided to document the high country east of the park, covering hundreds of miles of difficult terrain. She thought that if the American people could see the area's stunning landscapes, they'd realize the need to preserve them. So she produced a book, the proposed Roosevelt Sequoia National Park, a collection of photographs depicting the High Sierra. She said, and this is her quote, if you are weary with the battle, either of business or the greater game of life, and would like to find your way back to sound nerves and a new interest in life, I know of no better place than the wild loveliness of some chosen spot in the high Sierra, in which, when you have lost your physical self, you have found your mental and spiritual reawakening, unquote. Not only would Thieu's advocacy help triple the park's acreage in 1926, it served as the model for Ansel Adams, whose photographs helped convince Congress to create Kings Canyon National Park. So here we have these, uh, you know, just three of the six influential women that helped us um, establish or expand our national parks. Um, you know, unsung heroines that we are honoring uh, this month uh, for Women's uh, History uh, History Month. Well, that about does it uh, for me today, um, listeners. Uh, thank you, as always, for um, listening to the show. Uh, please do share news of the show uh, with your friends. And uh, if you would, at the show page, please remember to click the follow button so that you get... Um, uh, reminders of the show in your inbox every week. Uh, that way you don't have to remember to listen. It will be there and you can just go to your inbox and click on the show. Uh, there's also um, tons of interviews in the archives that are still as relevant today as when uh, these uh, guests were first interviewed. And uh, a reminder, if you're looking for me because people have been trying to find me and have not been able to because of my change in website, uh, the new website is karentate.net. Um, if you want to email me, it's karentate108 at yahoo.com. Uh, 
and uh, you still can make donations. Um, uh, you know, by uh, by PayPal, uh, you can do that through my website, uh, KarenTate.net. Just scroll through; you will easily find a PayPal button. Um, and uh, finally, um, for those of you who are looking for some of the guided meditations that were free on my old website, you can find them on YouTube. Uh, just go to YouTube and in the search box put Karen Tate Meditations. I am sure some will pop up for you. And if not, get in touch. Well, that about does it for me today. Um, I will be back uh, next Wednesday uh, with uh, one of the other contributors to um, the third anthology of the Manifesting a New Normal series. Uh, the anthology is Awaken the Feminine, and this contributor uh, that I'll have with me is uh, Diana Lamb. And uh, we are going to be talking about... Um, um, uh, I'm sorry, let's see, I'm looking for the topic here. I thought I had it. Um, Deanna is a womb visionary and motivational speaker, and um, we're going to be talking about um, discovering the divine feminine and the difference it can make in your life uh, and uh, about the personal empowerment that it, uh, that it provides for women and um, how the world would be different when the divine feminine and masculine are in balance. Uh, for some of you, that might be uh, a new topic, uh, and for those of you who have are familiar with these sorts of topics, uh, I think if you tune in, you might uh, hear something fresh and new. So uh, please do um, come back next week uh, and every week. And uh, again, thank you so much for listening tonight uh, to my interview with Lizette uh, Schutmacher, a childless living, the joys and challenges of life without children. Thank you very much.